the Egel Hazahav, the sin of the golden calf, is at once both the most tragic and perhaps the most shocking event in the entire Torah. Tragic, obviously, because of the devastating impact it had on the Jewish people. If not for Moshe's heroic uh, efforts, the whole Jewish people would have been destroyed by Hashem in his anger and his righteous indignation, certainly deserved as Hashem focuses anger on the Jewish people. But really what I want to focus on is the fact that it was not just tragic, but just truly shocking. How is it possible, at first glance, that the Jewish people are making an idol, a golden calf, just, you know, 40 days after they've heard God himself speak to them on the mountain, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am the Lord your God, you should not have other gods, not make idols. Not that long after Hashem split the sea for them, not that long since Hashem did the ten makos for them, how is it possible that people who saw and experienced what the Jewish people did in the Dor Hamidbar, how could they, of all people, have built an Egel Hazahav, a golden calf? And this very obvious and difficult question is one that occupies the mind and the attention of many, if not all, of the classical Mepharshim. One approach, which we find already in Rashi, and based on earlier sources in Chazal, is to take the Psukim at what might be assumed as simple, and at uh, first glance seems very uh, simply uh, simple reading of the Psukim, and that yes, it was a form of Avodah Zarah. Based on certain statements in Chazal, Rashi seems to moderate it slightly perhaps, Perhaps Rashi is suggesting, as some Madrashim do, that they weren't looking necessarily to replace HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but rather to have many gods. The Jewish people, according to Rashi, wanted many gods. And this is something that one does find in perhaps the Madrashim as well. Um, okay, so not to totally replace God, but to assist God, still a form of Vodazara, somewhat shocking. Rashi, though, does not address the question of how this could have happened. The Rambam in the Mornavuchim seems to agree with Rashi's basic approach, with Chazal's basic approach, and, Ra- and the Rambam, excuse me, does address this from a very insightful psychological uh, approach, and says the Rambam, we have to realize that no matter how dramatic and how incredible the experiences that the Jewish people had in this relatively short period of time, from the beginning of the Makos to their moment 40 days after hearing Hashem speak to them on the mountain, nevertheless we have to realize that in the scheme of things it was a very small amount of time and human behavior cannot change abruptly. We have to understand, says Ramam, this is a people that for many, many, many years had been marinating in the Avodah culture of the Egyptians, polytheistic, uh, pagan, uh, you know, culture of the Egyptians. And we know that they themselves, according to Chazal, were basically the, you know, idol worshippers themselves in Mitzrayim. It's true that they had heard Hashem speak to them. It's true that they knew God had saved them. And in their heart of hearts, they knew the truth. However, says the Rambam, real lasting behavioral change doesn't happen that fast. And therefore, when they were tested for that brief moment, when they thought that something had happened to Moshe, they reverted to their old habits. They reverted to what they were used to having, used to experiencing, which was Avodah Zarah. And it's terrible and it's sad, but says the Rambam, we see from the continuation of the story that it really took them ultimately 40 years to totally kick that habit. So 
many Midrashim, Rashi, and the Rambam take the Pesukim at face value. It seems that it was a form of Avodah Zarah, and we can understand this perhaps with a little bit of a psychological and a broader perspective on the Jewish experience uh, in the desert and Mitzrayim. A whole other group of Mepharshim, led by Ibn Ezra and Ramban in a very, very lengthy comment, say that the whole assumption that Rashi and Ramban are making is a mistake. If you look carefully in the Pesukim, they're not looking to replace God, but rather, says the uh, Ibn Ezra, they just wanted someone to replace Moshe. The Ramban says this in a very lengthy piece, as I mentioned, and it says, if you look in the Pesukim, it's quite meduyak. The Pesukim says in the beginning of Perak Lamed Beis, am ki Moshe menahar. They saw that Moshe was delayed based on their erroneous counting, but they thought that Moshe was delayed, coming down from the mountain. So it's true, says the Ibn Ezra, says Ramban, that they use the term Elohim here in the Pasuk. Moshe, they tell Aaron, has not come down from the mountain, make us an Elohim. But it's clear from context, says Ramban, at great length, and Ibn Ezra more briefly, that they didn't mean it as a god. After all, says Ramban, he has at least three proofs to this. First of all, everything in the Pasuk is all about Moshe needing to be replaced. They knew that Moshe wasn't God. There was no Havamina that Moshe was God. So what would Moshe's disappearance have to do with replacing Hashem? They're clearly looking to replace Moshe. Moreover, even when they say Elohim, they don't say, make us a God, make us Elohim who will give us life in this world or in the afterworld, Olam Haba. They say, give us an Elohim who will lead us, who will yell chulifanenu. Who was that? That was Moshe. Moshe was the one who had been their leader. From the time he appeared on the scene to that moment, he was their leader. They were clearly looking for a replacement uh, as a leader. Also, when... Moshe is angry at Aaron, and Aaron defends himself by explaining, listen, this is what the people asked for, and therefore I built them this. Says Ramban, if the people had asked for an idol, Aaron's excuse would not be a defense at all. It would have damned him with greater critique. The people asked for a Vodazar, and I gave it to them. It's clear, says Ramban, that the people never asked for an idol, and Aaron was not presenting it as such. They were a mistake. They, were, they made a mistake. It was a sin. But the sin was not Avodah Zarah at all. It was that they thought to mistakenly replace Moshe. The Kuzari, in a third approach, very famously points out that the people psychologically needed a symbolic way to approach Hashem. And in their mind, they saw no difference between the eagle, which they built, Whereas the Luchos or the Mishkan, which were also symbolic ways to relate to Hashem. And says the Kuzari, they were right, but they were critically wrong. They're critically wrong because the difference is Tzivui Hashem. It's true that the Mishkan and the Luchos are symbolic ways, but those were things that Hashem commanded. And only if Hashem commands you to do something, does that give it intrinsic religious value. In Parshas Kitisa, the Torah reiterates the obligation and significance of Shabbos. Most well-known are the teachings which are derived from the juxtaposition of the laws of Shabbos to the construction of the Mishkan. However, there are, another, other, there are a number of other important, though more subtle, lessons that can be gleaned from inferences in the Torah text as well. In particular, as the Torah tells us in Perak Alamed Aleph, Pasuk Yud Gimel, a very famous and well-known Pasuk, Yata, Hashem tells Moshe, Dabr el Bnei Israel, Lamor, speak to the Jewish people and tell them the following, Ach es Shabsosai Tishmaru. Just you must observe my Shabbos's Kiosi Beni Uveinichem. It is a sign, a covenant between me, God, and you, the Jewish people, the Dorosechem, for all generations. Ladas Kiani Hashem Mikadishchem. So you should know that I am the 
Lord your God, who sanctifies you. Fascinatingly, the Mechilta, or the Psikta, as the case may be, the Medrash on this Pasuk, maintains that this phrase is seemingly redundant. After all, as the Medrash points out, didn't we already learn back in Shmos Perachof, Losasa Komolachav, that there's a prohibition of doing work on Shabbos? So why does this Pasuk seem to eventually, or once again, reiterate that? So says the Medrash, in other words, says the Medrash that the, this phrase, is coming to include and allude to the fact that aside from the biblically prohibited malacha, the Isurei Doraisa, the 39 prohibited categories of malacha that we cannot do on Shabbos, in addition to that, there are all sorts of rabbinic prohibitions that further limit the work which we can do and that can be done on Shabbos. There are many, many such examples, but of course the most famous one being the concept of muksa, which is a rabbinic prohibition as well. This is the halacha as is understood in the Torah Shavalpeh, the Medrash, based on the Pasuk here in our Parsha. In the beautiful and remarkable set of Svarim, Hadrash Vihayun, which were written by the famed Raish Rav, who was one of the great uh, Gedolim in Galicia, in pre-Holocaust Poland, first part of the 20th century, and eventually died Al-Kiddush Hashem at the hand of the Nazis. So in his remarkable Sefer, here commenting on our Parsha, he observes the following phenomenon. And he notes that the cumulative impact of all of these prohibitions, not only the 39 categories of Daraisa work that can't be done, but then the additional layer upon layer of rabbinic prohibitions, that creates a very comprehensive day of rest, says the Drash Yun, which is very, very free from work. Mida Raisa, 39 categories of work you couldn't do, but maybe many others you could. But then you add all the Durabonans in, and we've created this huge space, which really is prohibited and you know, pushes away almost any kind of work, which in theory should be a good thing. After all, isn't the purpose of Shabbos for Menucha? So says the Drash Yun, well, that depends. Perhaps. It all depends, he says, and this is so key, on what we do with that rest and all that free time. He says quite explicitly that during the week, we are very, very busy and we're tired and we're preoccupied with and from all of the efforts we need to have to work and to make a living. We don't really have that much time to learn necessarily to do extra mitzvot, and that's understood. You're busy during the week working. But it's also true, he says, that we don't have that much time to get ourselves into trouble, if you will, because we're so busy uh, working and focusing on things that we need to. However, he says, when we are free, then when we have no responsibilities, when things are prohibited from us, that beyond our reach to begin with, and then all that leaves us with is free time, so then, he says, the mind naturally wanders, and the Yetzirah pounces, our imagination can run wild, and we can become tempted. Sometimes, he says... It's the Shvisa Atzma, the very rest itself, the thing which is supposed to be the source of spiritual blessing, the Shabbos. It itself can be our worst enemy. The rest itself can cause a person, without the regular structure of responsibility, with the excess of free time, all of a sudden that can lead a person into places that really shouldn't be. And frankly, when they are busy during the week and with the structure of the week, 
They don't. They don't go there. But free from structure, free from responsibility, prohibited from doing work, perhaps all that empty space just gets filled with things that shouldn't be done. However, as he says so beautifully and so eloquently, of course, that's not what the part the Shabbos is supposed to be. Obviously, that's not the manucha of Shabbos, and that's not the calm that the Shabbos is supposed to inspire. Rather, he says, Shabbos, the purpose of Shabbos is to give people the opportunity, the free time, the physical rest, and the mental space, to focus on spiritual, sublime, idealistic pursuits. Which you don't have the time or the energy, energy or the mental space for during the week because you're so busy, you're so preoccupied, and you're so tired. He says that is exactly what the purpose of Shabbos is. It's not just supposed to be a spiritual version of lying on the beach, you know, sipping your pina colada with nothing to do and not a care in the world. That is not what's supposed to happen 52 weeks a year every seventh day on the Shabbos. That is not what the Torah had in mind. On the contrary, he says, that's more likely to lead to bad things, not to good things. He points out that the Gemara in Masech Subas tells us in Daphne Nantes that batala mevidile zima, batala mevidile shiamum. A person will go out of their mind if they have too much free time, and frankly, a person will also go into immoral things when they have too much free time. As we say in the Shabbos davening, the purpose of davening is, of Shabbos is, excuse me, yom menucha kedusha la'am chanasata. It's not just menucha, but also kedusha. It's supposed to be a day of sanctity. The goal of Shabbos is obviously not to be unproductive, let alone destructive, a day of rest. The real purpose of Shabbos, he says, of course, is to take advantage of the rest, take advantage of the free time, and devote those renewed and extra energies and time to spiritual pursuits that aren't given enough time and attention during a busy work week. Towards the end of this week's Parsha, we read the Torah's famous depiction of Moshe coming down from the mountain. He comes down from Harsinai, Beredes Moshe me Harsinai, Ushne Luchos Eidus Biad Moshe. He's holding the Luchos Beredeto on his way down from Minhar from the mountain. And then the Torah tells us, amazingly, Umoshlo Yada Kikaran or Panav Bedabroito. Moshe didn't realize that the whole time Hashem had been speaking to him, his face had a radiant shine. There was sparks of light, so to speak, coming out of his face. Something obviously miraculous, almost supernatural. And the Torah says Moshe had no recognition, didn't even, wasn't even aware of that. In fact, this very famous and incredibly powerful phrase, Karan or Panav, is repeated another two times, altogether three times in this last section of the, of the Parsha. In fact, the very last Pasuk of the Parsha repeats this as well. Ru'u b'nei Yisrael es Moshe ki Karan or p'nei Moshe. When the Jewish people saw him, they noticed that his face shone, it was radiant, and with a splendorous light. And, of course, uh, this, I'm, I'm translating the psukim correctly, but the Hebrew word keren, or karan, or panav, it's karan, which means the radiance, but it could be mispronounced as keren, which means, we know, horns. And, of course, this is the basis for the famous sculpture by Michelangelo of Moses uh, with his uh, horns coming out of his head. And of course, we know this became unfortunately fodder for anti-Semites uh, over the centuries who assumed that the Jews were some kind of a devil uh, with our horns, which of course came from the Michelangelo's mistake and the classic mistake uh, at that period of mistranslating Karan, uh, the radiant shine for Karen for horns. Uh, that historical uh, curiosity uh, notwithstanding, 
the rabbis in the Medrash Chazal uh, are very curious uh, and probe, I think, in a very fundamental and profound way. This is a once-in-a-human-history phenomenon, uh, the idea that the Torah is attesting to something that was special about Moshe, that he radiated some special light. Asks the Medrash, where did it come from? What's the source of that light? And I think that we should understand, and I think that the, the rabbis in the Medrash mean this question, not just as a technical, literal question, you know, like you, know, you show up at home with some groceries. Where did they come from? Where did you get them? This is, I think, a much more fundamental question. Not just where did Moshe, so to speak, pick up the light, but I think it's a more fundamental question. When we think of Moshe, where was his light from? Where was the magic? Where was the special quality? What made Moshe so special that he literally, according to the Torah here, was glowing and radiating light? Where does Moshe's greatness, his light, come from? And in fact, uh, there are three primary answers that are given uh, in the Medrash. It's two parallel Medrashim that I want to share with you, one from Shmos Rabbah and one from the Medrash Tanhuma. Two different midrashim, both on our parsha, who are very much overlapping and complement each other. And I think there are three different answers that are suggested. The first answer, which actually Rashi and our parsha alludes to, says in the name of the Rabbanon that it came min hameara. It was when Moshe was in the cave. What cave? What are we talking about? So the proof texts that are brought refer to the cleft of the rock. We know that when Moshe was on the, somewhere on the side of the mountain, there was some cleft, some area where he could, so to speak, um, hide from sight. He could go out of, people wouldn't see him. He snuck into this little crevice in the side of the mountain, and Hashem, so to speak, passed by, and he had a very, very elevated and transcendent spiritual experience with Hashem in that moment. And I think that is the deeper answer to the question, according to this first opinion. That is to say, according to this opinion in the Medrash, where did Moshe's light come from? Literally, and even on the deeper level, as I mentioned, the answer is, because of his close connection and relationship with Hashem. Too often we mediate our relationship and we substitute all sorts of things, even if they're good things, and we try to connect Hashem through those things. But ultimately there is no replacement for a direct encounter with Hashem. We're not always able to have that, but Moshe was. And a direct encounter with Hashem, which he had in that cleft of the rock, that's when Moshe got this special light. I think this is confirmed when we look at the Medrash Tanhuma that not only mentions the term Me'ara, but then adds that in the Me'ara, Nasana Karsh Baruchu, Kaf Yado Alav, which I understand to mean kind of like an older Bubby or Zaidi who kind of caresses a little boy or little girl's face, that loving caress of the side of the face. That's the image that's depicted. Baruch so to speak, did that to, to Moshe. And again, I think that confirms our, inter- our understanding that this first opinion is describing a very close, intimate relationship and experience that Moshe had with Hashem in that moment. And it's from there that Moshe derived the light that you know literally glowed off of the side of his face. The second opinion in the Medrash is that it came from the Luchos. And the Medrash describes, actually, that when Hashem gave Moshe the Luchos, they were six Tvachim by six Tvachim. And Hashem, so to speak, was holding two of the Tvachim, Moshe holding the other end, holding two of the Tvachim, and it was those middle two Tvachim. Tvachayim Be'emsa, says the Medrash. Misham Natal Moshe Karniho. That's where he got his glow, his rays of light from. And I understand this opinion to be describing the act of transmission of Torah, literally the luchos, but I think more broadly Torah, that this is describing Moshe as the student of Torah. To be on the receiving end of Torah, to be truly benefiting, especially from a teacher like Hashem, but really any teacher, to be a student of Torah, that gives a glow. That is Karan or Panav. That gives light to anyone. And it gave it to Moshe. When the giver and the recipient, that inter- that complex but 
ultimately magical interaction between teacher and student, giver and recipient, that meeting place in the middle when they come together, the Tzvachayim Bemsa, that's, that's it. It's that magic of studying, especially in a transmission with Hashem, that's where Moshe got the light from, according to the second opinion. It was the ability to learn Torah, to be a student, and to, so to speak, meet Hashem and come together in the middle, transmitting the Luchos or Torah more broadly, that, according to this opinion, gave Moshe his light. The final opinion says that when Moshe was writing the whole Torah, he used kind of a, a quill or some kind of a pen that had this ink in it. But says says the Medrash, Ad she Moshe kasav Torah nishtar v'kumos kima ve'yibira rosho. There was some uh, extra leftover ink uh, when he was writing the Torah, and that ink, so to speak, that quill pen, uh, so to speak, got in his face, was in his hair, and somehow from that, the, the glow came, the shine came. And I think the deeper message that this third opinion is describing is not Moshe as a student, but Moshe as the teacher, as the sofer, as the scribe, as Moshe is giving over and transmitting the Torah to the Jewish people. That act of teaching Torah is something so magical and so uplifting. And as much as you give, you the teacher are receiving. He glowed from that. After Hashem forgives the Jewish people for their terrible sin and their grievous error with the Egel Hazahav, the golden calf. The Torah recounts how Moshe went back up to Harsinai, he went back to the top of the mountain yet again to receive the second set of luchos, which eventually he would bring down and convey to the Jewish people. In Perak Lamedalad, Pasach Havches, the Torah tells us, V'hisham im Hashem arba'im yom v'arba'im layla. Just like the first time he was there for 40 days and 40 nights, lechem lo'achal, amayim lo'shasa, he didn't eat or drink anything, but rather v'yichtov al-luchos es divrei habris aseret advarim. But rather, Engraving, writing on these tablets on the Luchos were the Aser Sadibros that was taking place all 40 days that Moshe was up on the mountain. If we think about it for a moment, uh, this description and this phenomenon, which we are all familiar with and we perhaps even therefore take for granted, is actually somewhat baffling, somewhat puzzling. Why would Moshe need to spend another full length of time, 40 days, 40 nights on Har Sinai, relearning the Torah when he already knew it all? He already mastered the entire Torah for the first 40 days and 40 nights that he was up on the mountain before the Cheda Egel. So we understand why he might have needed a huge amount of time to get Hashem to forgive the people. That was the intermittent 40 days. And we also understand that he needed to go back up and spend some time engraving a new set of luchos. I can understand that too. But why would he need as much time to learn the whole Torah when for him it was already review? He knew it the first time. So this is a very interesting question, I think, if we think about it. And I'd like to share two answers, which are from different perspectives. One a more Musr perspective and one a Hasidic perspective. And in many ways are actually assuming, at least in the Pshat of the story, opposite interpretations. But I think they actually both converge to teach a very beautiful insight, both about teaching and about the role of a teacher and especially a leader. In the Sefer Pirkei Torah, Rav Mordechai Gifter, the Telzer Rosh Hashiva, suggests the following very beautiful answer. He says it's an elementary fact of any teaching, but certainly of Torah transmission, that the teaching must be done on the level, and I would add also in a style or format, but on the level that is appropriate for the student. The transmission of the giver has to be what's appropriate and therefore fitting for the recipient. Before the sin of the Egel HaZahav, the Jewish people had already reached an incredibly high level of Kedusha of holiness. As we know, 
they were on a very high level during Kriyas Yamsuf, and then certainly for the incredible thunder and light show, as it were, of the initial giving of the Torah, which Chazal described as you know, a singular event in all of world and human history. Because they were on such a high level, the Torah that Moshe had to prepare that first time was on a commensurate high level. However, it says of Gifter, after the people sinned, their Kedusha fell dramatically. There was a precipitous drop in their level. And therefore the Torah that Moshe had prepared for them the first time would not have been appropriate for them anymore. On some level it would have been too high for them because they were no longer on the level that they used to be. Therefore, says our Gifter, he had to go back up onto the mountain to relearn the Torah, more specifically to relearn how to transmit it in a way that's more appropriate for their current lower level of understanding. As fascinating as that Chiddush is, I think the point that Rav Gifter emphasizes at the end of his essay is even more important. And that is to say, the Torah is emphasizing that in fact, this new second preparation for the appropriate level that they were on now took as much time as the first time because one might have thought reasonably that the first time when they were on a higher level, Moshe had to prepare on a higher level for a more advanced transmission. Okay, that takes a huge amount of time, 40 days. But now that Moshe is giving it on a lower level, so presumably that's easier to prepare, easier to teach, easier to give over, and therefore shouldn't take as much time. And the Chiddush of the Torah, says Rav Gifter, the Pasuk is emphasizing there was the exact same amount of time. Because if you want to be a good teacher, if you want to do it right, you need to spend as much time teaching, so to speak, the lower shear as the higher shear. Maybe even more time to emphasize how important it is, how necessary, but frankly how hard it is in many ways to teach things to people who are on, relatively speaking, the lower level than on the more advanced level. And that is an incredible insight, not only into what happened with Moshe and on the mountain, but obviously a profound insight that any teacher, or for that matter, any influencer in any field, whether it be a parent or in any other area of life, should certainly keep in mind. A second approach, which is from a more Hasidic background, and in some ways the opposite assumption, is quoted by the Svasemes in his commentary at the end of our Parsha, where he has a short selection of ideas from that he connects to Parsha's Para. And he connects, he quotes, excuse me, his grandfather, the Chedush Arim, who was also bothered by this question, and he said his grandfather used to give an enigmatic answer. He would say that even though Moshe had already received the Torah, nevertheless, he needed another full 40 days, Kinyan b'makom shabalichuva omdin, ein tzadikin gemurin yucholem l'amod. The Chidush Arim would quote the famous Gemara Masechta Sanhedrin that someone who sins but does full and sincere tshuva is eventually on a higher level even than an absolute tzaddik who never sinned in the first place. In that case, said the Chidush Arim, Moshe therefore needed to relearn the Torah again. The Svasemis, however, after quoting his, father, his grandfather, says, I don't understand, you know, with all due respect, what he's talking about. The people sinned. Moshe didn't sin, and the Chiddush of the Chiddush Arim, and this is the opposite in than of, than of Gifter, he says, according to the Chiddush Arim, that the people were on a higher level at the time of the second uh, Luchos, because they were Balei Tshuva. Okay, that's a fascinating Chiddush in its own right. But that explains the people. But Moshe never sinned, therefore Moshe never needed to do Tshuva, hence Moshe never became a Bal Tshuva, so he was on, on a different level. He was the same Moshe he always was. Says Sfas Emes, I'll explain to you what's going on. Moshe was the kind of leader, the ideal, who had such empathy, such no seb olim chavero, he was one with the people. And therefore, when they sinned, he also went down a level. Even though he didn't sin, 
He rode the roller coaster with them. And then when they did tshuva, when they were forgiven, he rose to a higher level, just like they were now. Hence, Moshe had to relearn the Torah, because he was now on a higher level, and they were on a higher level, and it was now appropriate to relearn the Torah on the new higher level he was on, all because of his great empathy and dedication to the people. In this week's parsha, we read for the second time now in the Torah, Lo Sevashel Gedi Bechalei the Pasuk that serves as the source for prohibiting eating meat and milk together. Even though the primary prohibition, Midoraisa, when it comes to eating milk and meat, is just that together. Nevertheless, the Gemara in Masech Tachulun and Daf Kufhei Amad Aleph teaches us that Midorabanan, there's an additional prohibition to wait in between eating meat, and then eventually eating milk. The Gemara tells a story about a certain Amora who says that his father was very, very pious and he would wait an entire day after eating meat before he would eat milk. However, this Amora himself says, you know, I just wait until the next meal. So I'd like to, using that uh, as the background, discuss two very classic, important, and practical questions that relate to this halacha. Number one is, why do we need to wait? Right? If it's acknowledged that that's not what the Pasuk is telling us, that that's an additional rabbinic prohibition, why did the Chachamim add this? What's the necessity of waiting in between a meat and then eating milk? I understand if the Torah says I can't eat them together, but why did the Chachamim say I can't eat one after the other? In this case, I can't eat milk after I've eaten a meat unless I wait a certain amount of time. So this seems to be a very important machlokas between Rashi and the Rambam. Rashi says, because we are worried that the fat of the meat will stick to your teeth or the roof of your mouth or other parts of your mouth, and then the taste of the meat will linger and then mix with the milk uh, or the dairy when you eat that subsequently. So it's a worry about the lingering uh, taste of the meat from the fatty residue. The Rambam, however, has a completely different concern. He says that the meat, which will be stringy or in any some other way uh, hard, will get caught in between your teeth, uh, something that we... <laughs> Many of us know from experience uh, that if you chew certainly certain kinds of meat, uh, it c- tends to get caught in between your teeth. And again, the fear is that it'll still be there when you subsequently have dairy. The tour in Yordea Simon Peites quotes these two reasons, that of Rashi and the Rambam, and suggests that there are three different divergent issues in which we could say that the practical halacha will depend on which of these two approaches we take. For example, says the tour, what's the halacha if after six hours or some lengthy period of time, still to be determined, but for now let's call it six hours, you still have some leftover meat in your mouth? Is that a problem or not? So according to the tour, he thinks that Rashi would say, yes, that's still a problem because it's still emitting taste. However, according to the Rambam, he says, after six hours, even though there may be some residual meat left over, it has been so broken down by the acids and other things in in your mouth that it actually doesn't have the status of meat anymore and it wouldn't be a problem. The taste may linger, but it's not actually meat anymore. That's one possible question. Something that's perhaps a little bit more common is, what if you just softly chew? Let's say you were very softly, gently chewing, maybe for a child or something like that. Does that also create a problem? So it says the tour depends. According to Rashi, if you chewed it without swallowing it, you just chewed it and then you gave it over to a child, there's no need to wait because the residue only attaches to your mouth when you swallow it. But according to the Rambam, the very act of chewing could have caused a problem. The meat could get stuck in between your teeth. So this would be another practical question which would depend on which of the concerns we are worried about. In this case, according to Rashi, we could be lenient, but according to the Rambam, we would be strict.
And a third and final uh, suggestion of the tour is the exact opposite case. What if you swallow a piece of meat without chewing at all? You swallow it whole. So again, he says, according to Rashi, swallowing is what gives the residual taste in your mouth, therefore it would be a problem. As opposed to the Rambam, who was just worried about meat getting caught in your teeth, well, if you didn't chew it all, then there is no problem whatsoever. How do we paskin on these three questions? So interestingly enough, despite the tour giving this beautiful uh, analytic uh, presentation of the halachos, two approaches, three different questions, each question depending on which approach you take. When it comes to the bottom line practical halacha, says the tour, he suggests, we should be machmir for both. If Rashi is the one who will lead us to a chumrah, accept that. If Ramam is the one who will lead us to be a chumrah, do that. Whichever position is going to be more machmir, says the tour, that's what we should take. And in fact, that is how the Shulchan Aruch paskins as well. And it's really a curiosity, which probably needs explanation beyond the scope of this brief Dvar Torah. Why are we so machmir on a question of a Durabonon? Usually with Durabonons, we're not excessively machmir. And yet here, the tour and the Shulchan Aruch tell us that we have to be machmir in all of the above-mentioned cases, as long as either the Rambam or Rashi would think that there's a problem. In either case, whenever even one of those Rishonim say it's a problem, we have to be machmir. Very interesting. Uh, finally, to uh, resolve a little bit of the confusion and the mystery, how long does a person have to wait in between milk and meat? You know, there are many different customs currently practiced in the Jewish community. Where do they come from and how many different positions are there? So truth be told, if you look at the Gemara, the one that we started with, uh, that doesn't say anything about a length of time. It just mentions the Amora waiting till the next meal. And actually, Tosos' position is that there is no set amount of time. It just means that you can't eat meat and milk in the same meal. But in fact, if you were to finish a meat meal, bench, make your bracha, clear off the table, and then set the table anew, according to Tosos, five minutes later, you could already be eating dairy. Obviously, we know that's not the accepted halacha, but it's worth noting that that is Tosus' position, that there is no time, it's just about different meals. However, all the other Rishonim and various customs do accept some amount of time. So one, obviously, very prominent shita is to wait six hours. This is mentioned uh, by a number of Rishonim, and the Ramah in Shulchan Aruch recommends this psak. The Taz says this as well. The Gra claims that the Zohar had this view. And most of the subsequent postkim, including the Shach, the Taz, the Chayodim, the Archa all say, speaking from Ashkenazi practice, that in their opinion, certainly speaking about Eastern Europe, everyone waits six hours, and they speak in very strong terms of anyone who waits anything less than six hours. It's a very strong and prevalent custom. However, there are other positions. So for example, the same Ramah who mentioned six hours, but he says, yeah, but other places have a custom of only waiting one hour. And we know this is what's known as the Dutch Minhug. And perhaps, or most likely, this emerged from the compromise of do you not have to wait at all, Kornetosvos? Okay, fine, we'll be machmir for some length of time and hours enough. Other posts came like the Dark Echuva, quote what's known as the German Minhug of waiting three hours. And then we finally have the fourth position, which is also somewhat common, which is, <coughs> excuse me, which is not six full hours, but to wait into the sixth hours. So this is based on a diuk of the Rambam who says you have to wait kishe shows approximately six hours, and many assume that that means even five hours and one minute into the sixth hour. Others suggest that that means five hours, 31 minutes, a little bit more than five and a half hours. Different positions in that regard of Aaron Cutler, others supposedly accepted this as well.